One of the things that I was uh, just kind of share with you as we uh, settle back down here, I'm always fascinated as I'm studying a book of the Bible and, and just, I get just really enjoyed um, kind of getting into the head of the author uh, as, it, as John was inspired by the Holy Spirit. As you, as you read through John, it's such dynamic dialogue. If you've noticed this as we've studied it together through the book of John, it's been, and he said this, and he said this, and this, and he then did this, and then he said this, and he's, you know, just back and forth, back and forth. And then you see uh, at the end of John chapter 19, when he's describing the, the work of Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea as they are, uh, that's really the section that, that um, where Jesus is dead. It's like once Jesus is dead in the book of John, all the dynamics of the, of the, of the literature just kind of goes away. It's just narrating what's going on, just saying, and he, even in, I'm, I'm getting technical here, but just kind of narrates it like the life is gone from the writing. And then it picks back up after Jesus resurrects. But you can... You can uh, See that for yourself as you, as you read through John on your own. But uh, as we're settled in here, let's uh, bow our heads once again. <clears throat> Father, we are completely dependent on you and the ministry of your Holy Spirit. Lord, um, <clears throat> your word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, able to to cut between bone and marrow and, and, and judge and estimate the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. But without your Holy Spirit, our hearts are just dead to it. Lord, I pray that you'd minister to us. You yourself, speaking to our hearts and minds through your word this morning. Lord, as we review Again, the glory of the raising of your son. I pray, Father, that you would speak to us anew of the significance that the world and even the universe took on at that moment when death had met its match. Lord, I thank you for this moment that we have right now. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking together for these weeks that we are in John chapter 20, which will be three or four weeks, we'll see, um, at the fact that John chapter 20 describes for us how it is that we can believe what seems to be too good to be true. We'll see how John describes Jesus interacting with individuals and with his disciples about the fact that he is truly risen from the dead and how their minds seem to just have to shift to realize this. You know, sitting um, together with fellow pastors uh, in the locker room on Friday with the Crawfordsville baseball team, I had never met Craig Reeves before. 
but you knew when he walked in the door into that locker room just hours after losing his son, I, I knew who this was. Because it was like the air just went out of the room. That he was there to say something to the team. Recognizing that he'd lost his son and they'd lost their friend. And one of the biggest things that stood out from what he said was this. He said, guys, life is so precious. And, and you knew that this was a man that, that it, was, it wasn't even real for him yet. And won't be for, for days and weeks even. But for that to resonate in that room was so significant. Life is so precious. I was, I was given a poem by someone, um, a new friend, uh, this past week. And it reads this. Life is a gift only God can give. Life is an experience you learn as you live. Life is a vision that has gone too fast. Life is a dream we all wish could last. Life's largest setback is a thing called love. Life without love is life without hope. Life without hope is sad. Be happy. Live to love and love to live. Remember, life is the gift. Only God can give. You're welcome, Raymond. Thank you for the poem. We learn from John 20 that life doesn't have to end. Not because of any power that we have in ourselves but because God has shared his power with us. He's defeated death for us. He's become, he's not just the author of life, he's the conqueror of death. Let's pick up in John 20 and just see how it wasn't it wasn't just assumed that this was going to happen. It had to be investigated. It had to be better understood. Maybe for you, it's like, I need to know more about this. I'm just not going to listen to what's said here. Well, the people involved in this account, they were in the same place. It says, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, let me just say that, that we, we saw in, at the end of chapter 19 that, that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea and probably their servants were burying Jesus quickly, and it, it was that Joseph's uh, new tomb was there close by, and so they buried him there, but it would have been a quick uh, work because it was the day of preparation prior to the Sabbath was, was coming to an end and Sabbath would start at, at nightfall. And so it would have been a quick work and this being the day after the Sabbath on Friday being the first, Saturday being the second, Sunday being the third day, Mary is likely coming to kind of complete that preparation and she's actually coming with, with other women, Matthew tells us. 
But John, in his writing, likes to focus on individual interactions with Jesus in his resurrection. So we see that with the other women, she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And we read, so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. This is the way that John describes himself. And said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have led, laid him. Now, Peter and John were thus away from the other disciples who were together and the other women, the other gospel accounts, tell us that the other women who were with Mary went and told the other disciples. And Mary goes and tells Peter and John. And um, her assumption here is, Somebody took his body. It may be that she was thinking accusingly of the Jewish leaders because having heard that Jesus was given this burial of a royal uh, person, it may be that she was thinking they saw it better fit that he be thrown into the common grave that was reserved for criminals. So anyways, she's saying they have taken the Lord out of the tomb was her assumption. So it says, So Peter went out with the other disciples, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. You're going to have to ask John, you know, when we see him in heaven, what was the point here he was trying to get at? Uh, It might be that Peter asked him that first when he got there, but... um, So we pick him in verse 5. And stooping to look in, he saw, being John, saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the, first, the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. The big picture here this morning is that if a person is willing to honestly investigate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they are likely to come to trust in what seems too good to be true. And that is that the author of life has defeated death and become the champion of life. We have uh, reviewed many times in our study of the book of John his summary verses of what it is that he's trying to get across. And more so than any point in this book, uh, these verses come into play because they summarize this chapter. Here at the end of John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John writes this, Now Jesus did many other signs, being his resurrection being the pinnacle of his signs, proclaiming, I am the Son of God. Well, John writes, He did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, 
But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Everyone's paradigm, as I mentioned in this chapter 20, everyone's paradigm gets blown away as they move from disbelief to belief in the resurrection of Christ. We see in these verses how John himself believes upon seeing the linen, the linen wrappings of Jesus' body. We'll see next week the fact that Mary Magdalene, initially thinking that Jesus is a gardener when she's speaking to him in the garden there, will be asking him where he has put his own body. Because her paradigm there is people die, and that's just a part of life. We'll see how the disciples will be held up in a room with the doors locked for fear of the religious leaders, and they'll be given Jesus' peace in their hearts as he speaks to them, and they'll be, be made glad in his presence. We'll see how Thomas will be moved from refusing to believe that Jesus has been resurrected and has appeared to the disciples, and he'll move to proclaiming Jesus as his living Lord and God. You know, we can tend to get fixated on things that we think bring us life. You know, I'm remodeling my kitchen. Some of you guys are like, that sounds like death. You know, for me, it's like when I wake up in the morning, I can't go back to sleep because I'm thinking about, okay, what if I did this? Okay, I think I can fix that by doing this. It's just kind of like it can kind of consume my mind. You know, and, and the fact is this, as, as I was kind of thinking about this and spending time um, with the Lord this week. I was praying, I was thinking, Lord, why, why, is, why is remodeling my kitchen just kind of at the pinnacle, at the, at the paramount of my thoughts? Not for fear, it's more like fascinated with it, enjoying it, you know. And reminded for me was the fact that uh, we are always looking for what, think, what we think will give us life. And in doing remodeling and stuff, I love that sense of accomplishment. I love that immediate gratification of putting it up there, getting it done. Kelly will walk in and she'll be like, it's time to go to bed. And she'll just find me sitting there. I put that wire there, you know? <laughs> you know, but that sense of, of accomplishment can be so strong. And it's a God-given desire. But so often, we find something that really meets that desire and we latch on to it really as an idol. And we can start giving to it what's been given to us to glorify God with because from it, we get an immediate meeting of that longing. And ultimately, what I'm saying here is that we gravitate toward those things because we think that in them, we receive life. This is why young ladies are gravitated toward young men that, 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 that 
don't care about taking advantage of them because they can be getting something from that. This is why young men can sit there staring in the mirror hours in the gym because they're getting something from that. You know, that's why we can, we can pour oodles of money into, you know, a car that just like, you know, puts our finances maybe way out of balance or something because we're getting something from that, you know? Where we need to be careful of is, do I think that life is found in this? And we know by, if we do, by how much we're willing to give to get it. That's kind of on the, on the side. But nothing compares to what we receive from our relationship with God because from it we receive life. It's what John is telling us, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. The life that we can have in Jesus' name is an unending living to the fullest in God's presence. But when death takes place, our normal expectation takes over. Life is over. In some ways, that's what makes life precious, right? It's so short. But it doesn't have to be. We see for Mary, normal expectations are there. We, re- we read here that she ran and went to Simon and Peter and to John and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. We'll see next week, as I mentioned, that it, how hard it is for Mary to shake this normal expectations. Even after being told by angels, he has risen from the dead. She's still looking for his dead body to, to honor it. Our normal expectation is this. The dead do not come back to life. That's our normal expectation. You know, there, there's, there's just natural laws that we have to live by. It's similar to the law called Murphy's Law. Other than, um, and, and there's, the, you know, Murphy's Law, if something can go wrong, it will. It was actually started by an a aeronautics uh, engineer, a scientist who was working on, um, I don't even remember the term for it, but he had set these jets that were supposed to be pointed in a certain direction, but you could make a mistake and point them in the other direction. And out of all 16, all of them were pointed in the wrong direction. So he, he established Murphy's Law. This was Dr. Murphy. He said, if something can be done wrong, it will. So try to make sure it won't. And Murphy's Law says, if anything can go wrong, it will. A corollary to this is left to themselves, things just go from bad to worse. The quantized revision of Murphy's Law is everything goes wrong all at once. Murphy's constant is matter will be damaged 
in direct proportion to its value. The more it's worth, the more it's going to be damaged. So the conclusions of Murphy's Murphy's Law can read like this. If there is a possibility of several things going wrong, the one that will cause the most damage will be the first one to go wrong. (laughs) And a corollary to this is if there is a worse time for something to go wrong, that's when it will happen. (laughs) Some of you farmers can relate to this, right? A second conclusion is if several things that could have gone wrong have not gone wrong, it would have been ultimately beneficial for them to have gone wrong. (laughs) Third is if anything can't go wrong, it will anyway. Fourth, if you perceive that there are four possible ways in which something can go wrong and keep these from happening, then a fifth way unprepared for will promptly develop. And lastly, if everything seems to be going well, you've obviously overlooked something. (laughs) Murphy's Law was brought into existence when sin entered into the world due to our choice to disobey God. But Murphy's Law, along with the finality of death, will be overturned when Jesus, the author of life and the conqueror of sin, will return and set up his kingdom here as king. And the resurrection is proof of that. So Peter and John discover the evidence of this truth when they examine the tomb. We read, and stooping to look in, He, being John, saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, cloths, but folded in up in a place by itself. Now, something interesting, just to kind of give you an overview of John 20 here. Jesus will say to Thomas, blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. But this term, and he saw, and she saw, and they saw, these pop up, these terms, they saw, happens several times in John 20 as Jesus interacts with people. And so really that message that John tells, Jesus says to Thomas at the end, it's really for all of the chapter, John and Peter as well, they're saying, and we saw it and we believed. And Jesus is saying to us throughout this, but blessed are those who who don't see and yet believe. So keep that in the back of your mind. But anyways, when when John is there at the tomb and and he's, it says he stooped to look in. This is, this is a verb that means to, to, can describe someone peering through a window. And the tomb entrance, they wouldn't have spent a lot of time um, digging out a large entrance because it wasn't expected that, you know, a lot of people would be going in and out necessarily. Um, and so it would have required probably getting on your hands and knees there and looking in. And John's kind of like peering in there 
you know, Simon Peter we see, and this is, this is kind of like the story of the tortoise and the hare. Uh, though he was slower, he gets into the tomb first. We're not sure what kept John back. But recall that Mary told them that someone had stolen or, or they have taken Jesus' body. So they're approaching this almost like a crime scene, right? And, and, and it'd be kind of like the, the uh, less senior detective kind of waiting there for, for his supervisor to get there and kind of check over the scene a little bit here. Understand the testimony of women in that day was not respected and wouldn't have even been sub, um, able to be submitted in a court of law. But two witnesses, two male witnesses, would have been made for a legal description of a possible crime. Okay, so it's very normal that Mary would have seen what's going on, and she goes and gets Peter and John. You guys need to come and, you know, verify this. And what do they see? They see it very expensive linen cloths laying there, likely along with the spices that were, that were put there. Uh, John earlier tells us 75 pounds of spices and aloes. And these things are undisturbed. They see a face cloth. And the term here could be, mean either folded neatly or rolled. And so either upon further, further investigation, they see that the face cloth had obviously been folded and set there or that it was actually still rolled in the shape that would have been painstakingly done in wrapping Jesus' body and his head. So it may be that what they're seeing here is the face cloth as it would have appeared if Jesus' body passed through the fabric much as he does later passing through the door in the upper room and what the rolling would have looked like simply compressed there. But they conclude here, robbers have not been here. Or someone that cares nothing for Jesus has not been here. One thing, they would have stolen these expensive linens or they would have just cast them aside. Someone made it clear here that something special has happened. And John's conclusion is Jesus' body, though the tomb is empty, it was not removed from the tomb as Mary suspected. I just want to give a side note here. And, and in these weeks when we look at the resurrection through John 20 and Jesus' appearances, and we invite you to, to continue to join us for that if you're, if you're just visiting here this morning. We're going to be looking at evidence for his resurrection. And, and one of the greatest evidences for the resurrection of Jesus is the empty tomb itself. Allow me to share with you just how firm the empty tomb is as a sturdy piece of evidence. I want to share just two points from an article written by Matt Perman arguing for the truth of the empty tomb. It says, first, Jesus' tomb was never venerated as a shrine. This is striking because 
It was a first century custom to set up a shrine at the site of a holy man's bones. There were at least 50 such uh, shrines in, in, these, in uh, Jesus' day. Shrines set up where at a tomb that held the body of a very holy and respected man. And he writes, since there was no such shrine for Jesus, we can know that his bones were not in this location. But secondly, he argues this. He says the resurrection was preached. The, the, the fact that Jesus' tomb was empty, it was preached in the same city where, in which Jesus had been buried shortly before. Jesus' disciples didn't go somewhere to some obscure place where no one had heard of Jesus to begin preaching about the resurrection, but instead began preaching in Jerusalem, the very city where Jesus had died and been buried. They could not have done this if Jesus was still in the tomb. No one would have believed them. No one would, have been, would be foolish enough to believe a man had risen from the dead when his body lay dead in a tomb for all to see. As Paul Atheos writes, the resurrection proclamation could not have been maintained in Jerusalem for a single day, for a single hour, if the emptiness of the tomb had not been established as a fact for all concerned. We can have the same confidence in the empty tomb from which Jesus' body was not robbed out of but resurrected. And like John, this should lead us to an incredible realization. We read in verses 8 and 9, Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed, John speaking of himself, for As yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So John is informing us of what happened when he saw the conditions of the wrappings of Jesus' body and his face cloth there. He references the fact that they weren't thinking of how the Old Testament had talked about what must take place, what would take place, such as in Psalm 16.10, where David writes, because you will not abandon me to the grave, he writes prophetically of Jesus, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. There's many implications that come with Jesus' resurrection, and we're gonna look at these implications over these weeks together in John 20. The first of these implications or uh, this incredible realization is the fact that Jesus' resurrection means that everything that he taught is true. It verifies that everything that he taught and said, he is the authority on life. He is the authority on what life to the fullest and the definition and meaning of life He's the authority on what that is. In other words, if he truly resurrected, what he said about himself is true. He truly is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one is able to have a relationship with God the Father except through him. He truly is the resurrection and the life. 
and that though the person who believes on him might physically die, yet they will live. If he is truly resurrected, then what he says about God the Father is true, and God's judgment is true. Those who believe in him, he said, have passed from death to life already and will not face judgment. If he's truly resurrected, what he says about his father is true in the sense that he loves the world and has given his son as a sacrifice, as the absorption, the offering that absorbs his wrath, and that those who believe on him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. If he's truly resurrected, what he says about obtaining joy and purpose in life is true. That if we drink of him as the living water, then from within us will well up springs of living water. If he's truly resurrected, we don't need to fear the fact that biblical truth is not shaping our nation's laws any longer. We don't have to be afraid. And we find, as we find our pop culture is pouncing on anything that smells of discrimination of against anyone anyone wanting to make their sexuality into their identity we don't have to be afraid because Jesus told us that we should not fear the one who can kill the body because his resurrection proves that those who follow him experience his indestructible soul as their own If he is truly resurrected by his work on the cross, it is truly finished. There is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No need for shame. No need for separation or hiding from God our Father in all of his righteousness. It is truly finished if he is truly resurrected. The resurrection of Jesus validates that he is the source for truth, for life and understanding of how to truly live. And if you are still separated from God the Father because of your sin, because you haven't received Christ as your Savior, all you simply have to do is come to him and let him know that you want to know him because you know that Jesus has made the way for you to be able to have him as your father again. And you can be forgiven of all of your sins, every, every wayward deed, thought, or intention that you have ever or will ever commit. That's what comes with his resurrection. That's what's proved by his resurrection John himself is admitting that there was so much more of Jesus' teaching than he had grown to understand, starting with the resurrection itself. 
I just want to close reading the lyrics to an Andrew Peterson song entitled More. It describes how death is a reminder that there is so much more beyond this life. Those who trust in the author and champion of life for salvation are able to take advantage of the eternal life which is so much more than anything we can ever experience here. He writes, this is not the end here at this grave. This is just a hole that someone made. Every hole was made to fill and every heart can feel it still. Our nature hates a vacuum. This is not the hardest part of all. This is just the seed that has to fall. All our lives we till the ground until we lay our sorrows down and watch the sky for rain. There is more. More than all this pain. More than all the falling down and getting up again. There is more. More than we can see from our tiny vantage point In this vast eternity, there is more. A thing resounds when it rings true, ringing all the bells inside of you. Like a golden sky on a summer eve, your heart is tugging at your sleeve, and you cannot say why. There must be more. There is more. More than we can stand, standing in the glory of a love that never ends. There is more, more than we can guess, more and more forevermore, and not a second less. There is more than what the naked eye can see, clothing all our days with mystery, watching over everything wilder than our wildest dreams could ever dream to be. There is more. By rising from the dead, Jesus has proven himself to be qualified to teach us about all the more that is out there beyond what we simply see before us. And knowing him makes more of everything we know. Father, Thank you for access to the more that's out there. Thank you, Father, so much for allowing us to have access to you. You are the treasure. The relationship with you is the gold. The relationship of knowing you is what life was meant to be. And thank you for the fact that you have made that way and you've made that way clearly for us through Jesus. If you're sitting here and you want this Easter to be the first one that you walk away from knowing the person that it's all about, I simply encourage you to pray after me. Dear God, I know that my sins have made a mess of my relationship with you. And I know that Jesus has paid for them. 
Lord, I want to know you as my Father. Would you please forgive me of my sins and make me your child? Thank you for your forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that this Easter would be one which we can share our hope that is confirmed by the resurrection of your son with those who are in our lives as we interact with family and friends celebrating together. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.